Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Next up, on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Reimagined Radio. This is John Barber, producer of the series, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's performance of Science Fiction, Science Facts. Those of you who have followed Reimagine Radio know that in the past we have provided live performances for your eyes and ears of full-length radio dramas with voice actors, foley and digital sound effects, music, and more. Tonight, we are going to take a different approach and sample from a classic science fiction radio drama the Junkyard, written by noted author Clifford D. Simak. This drama was an episode of X-1, a top-rated science fiction series from the golden age of radio, 1930s through the 1950s. When I say sample, I mean that we will portray only parts of this radio drama, and we will do so to introduce our featured speakers, who will overlay the science fiction provided by our voice actors with science facts drawn from their research and that of other scientists around the world. Science fiction has a long tradition of exploring earthbound topics in different spaces and places, times and dimensions, both real and imagined. Science fiction has often inspired science, technology, and the humanities to rethink, reimagine, and re-understand the role of humanity in the natural world here on Earth. Science, rather than imagination, is based on facts, quantifiable, verifiable, observable, repeatable facts. Our guests tonight are both scientists associated with Washington State University, Vancouver. Dr. John Harkness convenes with the neuroscience program, and Dr. Mark Kramer is associated with the School of the Environment. As I said, they will overlay our science fiction story with science facts. The result, we hope, will be an entertaining and insightful evening. Our voice actors are all volunteers from Metropolitan Performing Arts here in Vancouver. KXRWFM, Vancouver's radio station, is graciously streaming our performance tonight all around the world and up to the International Space Station via the internet. Say hello. For those of you listening at home tonight, we are broadcasting live and direct without benefit of commercial dis uh, disruption from the beautiful and historic Kiggins Theater situated in the heart of the Arts District in downtown Vancouver, Washington, USA. 
Our story tonight involves a journey through new dimensions of time and space, from Earth to the far reaches of the solar system and back to Earth, which has changed dramatically in our absence. Thank you for joining us. Now, please sit back, relax, and make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened as we prepare for our journey. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one, fire. Captain's Log, 17 July 2003. This is Irene Warren, commander of the survey ship Habasupi Sunlight. My crew and I were dispatched to survey Eris. Faint signals were detected coming from this very large dwarf planet. We were sent to investigate. Discovered earlier this year and formerly known as UB313, Eris is about three times further from the Earth than Pluto. The trip out, a distance of 873,784,589 miles, even powered with solar sails, took 18 years. We spent most of that time in suspended animation. When we arrived at Eris in 2021, the onboard computer woke us all. We set the ship into orbit, ran tests, didn't see any sign of life. We did find the source of the signals we were sent to investigate. They seemed to originate from the junkyard. That's what my executive officer, Captain Brady, called it. A load of alien machine parts discarded by another spaceship. We landed. Captain Brady led an away team to investigate. They did not find the source of the signals. There was nothing more we could do, and we did not have the resources to remain long-term on Eris. We prepared to return to Earth. Engine room, MacGyver. This is Commander Warren. All secure? Yes, ma'am. Very well. Countdown to blastoff. Engine room ready, ma'am. X minus five. Minus four. Minus three. Minus two. X minus one. Fire. MacIver, what's wrong down there? Well, I... I don't know, ma'am. What's happening down there? Ma'am, I... I don't know what quite to say. We'll say something or I'll have you busted. We can't start the engines, Commander. At least I can't. Well, why not? Is there something wrong with the engines? No, ma'am. I've double-checked them. Well, then, let's get them heated up or we'll be on this godforsaken planet for the rest of our lives. We can't do it, ma'am. MacIver, suppose you tell me exactly what the problem is? You don't expect me to believe that you and your intellectual engineers with years of hypervision experience have forgotten how to start the engines of a ship. Yes, ma'am. We've forgotten how to start the engines. <laughs> All right, MacIver, now you listen to me. You have manuals down there, right? Engineering manuals? Yes, ma'am. Good. I want you to study those manuals. They'll tell you and your crew how to start the ship, won't they? Yes, ma'am. I have the manuals here. And they tell all about the engines, how they operate, how to locate trouble, how to fix them, how to start them. Well then what is it? What's the problem? I can't remember the symbols. Ma'am, I've forgotten how to read. Captain Brady. 
do you think? <laughs> Search me, Commander. I I've seen them with space blues, alien psychosis, the works, but I've never seen a disease that could make a crew forget how to start the engines. Okay. What then? Well, humans experience incidents, uh, gather knowledge, uh, no emotions. And then as they grow older, they begin to forget those experiences. Forget that knowledge. That's what life is, a long series of forgettings. Here on Aries, in some impossible way, the forgetting is speeded up. It happens overnight. No, there's more to it than that. There are lots of theories for cause of memory loss. Kinks in the brain, neuroses, data processing. But suppose they're wrong. Those skills, that important knowledge, went somewhere. Now suppose an advanced life form wanted to learn about other intelligence in the galaxy. One way of doing that would be to build machines that gathered information, like memories, from the minds of other life forms. Such devices for gathering knowledge might take in and store the memories of anyone within range. Flaming asteroids, ma'am. These devices would be memory traps. <laughs> That's right. But, but why put a memory trap on an out-of-the-way melon like Ares? I mean, there's nothing here. Think about it. Who says memory has to be gathered at the location of a memory trap? Where would you put a memory trap? On a planet swarming with intelligent beings where it would be found and destroyed or secrets snatched away? Or would you put it on a remote planet like Ares where nobody would even bother it? <laughs> Why, Commander, that's right! I'd put it right here, where it would be safe and undisturbed. If the range was sufficient, a memory trap on Ares might steal memories as far away as Earth. Yeah, yeah. And every time someone on Earth forgets something, it's because that memory has been drained away by a memory trap. Yes. Now follow that thought for a moment. We know from our surveys that intelligent life thrives throughout the galaxy. And we know that in every galactic culture there is forgetfulness. Might forgetfulness be caused by thousands upon thousands of memory traps planted throughout the galaxy, nibbling away at the conscious memory of all of the sentient beings that live among the stars? On Earth, we forget slowly because the traps are far away. But here, on Ares, in the very shadow of a memory trap, forgetfulness might come more quickly, overnight. Yeah. Maybe there is a memory trap here on Ares. Perhaps that signal we heard. This science fiction portrayal suggests that human memory might be stolen from our minds, making us forget things. Is this possible? That's jo Dr. John Harkness, founder and CEO of Rewire Neuroscience and postdoctoral research fellow in the neuroscience program at Washington State University, Vancouver. Yes, hi, I'm John Harkness. <laughs> So I'm a postdoc in neuroscience at uh, WSU Vancouver here. And uh, you know, while I think science can explain some things, it might have a bit of a hard time explaining how a memory can be uh, stored outside of the body and then put back into the human brain. But what it can explain to us is a little bit about how memories are formed, how they're maintained, and how they're forgotten. So let's take a step into the brain. 
Uh, it's this just incredible hunk of tissue, right? It's about three pounds sitting between our ears, and in those three pounds, it contains over 100 billion neurons. I mean, this is quite a big number. And on top of that, there are about 10 times as many supporting cells. And each of these neurons is reaching out, forming connections with its neighbors, to the extent that there are about 500 trillion synapses in the human brain. Think about that. That's like 2,000 to 3,000 times the number of stars in the Milky Way. That's an enormous number. So obviously, the brain is very complex. I think it's also really beautiful. This is an image of a slice of brain tissue that we captured at WSU. And so tonight, let's take a look into the brain and see if we can come up with some explanations for what happened to this crew on their mission to Aries. <laughs> Before we get there, let's, uh, yeah, let's consider kind of the human component to this. Uh, you know, these, these astronauts have been out there circling the, the solar system for 18 years, and I'm sure they're all quite lonely, they're all probably a little bit bored, and so probably the easiest explanation for maybe what happened here, why they can't drive the ship, is that they got a little bit drunk. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? If, uh, if you couldn't drive the ship home, would you want to tell your boss? It might be easier just to say, I, I think aliens stole our memory. Uh, and, and on top of that, you know, alcohol and, and forgetfulness or, you know, loss of memory does, does sort of make sense. And so let's actually explore this a little bit. Let's dive into it. So alcohol, I, I think, is, is a really incredible drug for, if no other reason, that it's one of the only drugs that we ingest in gram quantities. This is enormous. All of the other drugs that you take, you know, if you're taking something for anxiety or, or you know, whatever it is, you're taking it a fraction of that, like milligrams or nanograms. But we ingest alcohol in quantities that we ingest things like salt. And when we ingest it, it diffuses all throughout our body, and it has all sorts of effects, including effects in the brain, and that's really important. So alcohol acts to increase GABAergic neurotransmission by actually interacting with both the presynaptic and postsynaptic sides of a synapse. So a message is coming down from the presynaptic neuron and it reaches the synapse, and if alcohol is present there, it might actually make that GABA signal uh, uh, more impactful because more GABA is being released or because the GABA is being picked up on the other side to a greater extent. And so all this GABA activity acts to inhibit other sorts of neural signaling. GABA is a, an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and so it can actually silence some parts of the brain. This is probably something you've experienced, you know, with a glass of wine, you feel a little bit relaxed, you might feel disinhibited, and with a little bit more alcohol, then we start to think of things like sedation or, or death, but maybe also, <laughs> don't drink that much, but maybe also some memory loss if you're blacking out. And so, <laughs> So let's explore this. Let's go back to the scene of the crime. Let's look for some evidence to support this hypothesis. And just looking at this picture here, I mean, there's a couple things wrong. I don't see any beer bottles on the ground. So that's probably evidence to suggest they weren't drinking. But also, alcohol doesn't really cause you to forget things. Alcohol causes you to not remember things, right? You're not forming new memories. And that's not really what's happening here. Our astronauts have forgotten how to fly a ship, and this is presumably something that they've been able to do for quite some time. Not a new trick. So I think we can rule out that alcohol is the cause of this forgetfulness. And so let's think of another idea. What's another reason that someone could forget something? And 
And actually, what comes to mind is, is probably all the dramatic portrayals we see of forgetfulness, like on TV. Uh, and when somebody forgets something on TV, it's because of amnesia. <laughs> and my favorite example of amnesia is from Portland's very own Grimm, right? This was filmed just next door. Uh, when Grimm's fiance forgets who he was because of some magical amnesia that has wiped this one specific thing from her memory. And obviously, you know, this isn't really a type of amnesia that, that happens very often, but, but amnesia itself is very real. And there's actually a couple different types of amnesia that we, we talk about. There's amnesia that occurs prior to an event or, or memory loss that occurs prior to an event. We call that retrograde amnesia. This is when you might not remember something because of, of brain drama, potentially. And then there is forgetfulness or, or memory loss that occurs after an event. And this is something that we use in medicine all the time. Uh, for example, administration of a, a drug called midazolam uh, can be given prior to surgery and it does a couple of things. It helps with sedation of the patient, but it also helps prevent memories from being uh, formed during surgery because you know, it'd be quite traumatic to, to wake up and remember, oh my god, they took my appendix out. Uh, and so, so this is a really great drug to give. Interestingly, it's actually very similar to alcohol in a number of ways. It belongs to a class of drugs called benzodiazepines, and those benzodiazepines act on those same GABAergic receptors that we talked about earlier with alcohol. So now let's take this into context of, of, uh, of our script here, of our, our plot, and we can think that, well, if alcohol wasn't a likely candidate because it's actually you know, preventing the formation of memories, then, then I would say that uh, anterior, grade, anterior grade amnesia is probably also not a very likely candidate, so they weren't given midazolam. Retrograde amnesia seems like a bit of a more likely candidate because they did forget you know, this, this important task after all. But unfortunately, retrograde amnesia is, is much more likely to occur with something like traumatic brain injury. And, and let's rule that out, because as far as we know, our, our astronauts are walking around upright and they're doing okay. So to understand what's going on here, I think we need to dive a little bit deeper into memory and think of actually the neuroscience behind how memory is formed and maintained and then eventually forgotten. So our astronauts, at some point, learned how to drive a spaceship, right? They had this very first experience. They were in Spaceship Driver's Ed, and they're sitting there next to the, the Driver's Ed teacher with their spaceship brake pedal. <laughs> and, uh, and they turned this experience into a long-term memory. So the experience is, is stored, and it's done that uh, with a process called uh, memory consolidation. So once that memory is stored into long-term memory, it's pretty well locked in. It's not going anywhere until you need to use it again. And in order for us to re-experience a memory, we actually have to, to pull it back up out of long-term memory in a process known as memory retrieval. And so when we do this, when the astronauts did this, they took their memory of how to drive the spaceship and they actually made it malleable again. They made it labile. And that's interesting, but it's also a little bit dangerous because when it's labile, we can change it, we might be able to delete it. And so let's say in this case, our, uh, our, our astronauts once knew how to drive a rocket ship, but uh, in the course of their career, they learned how to drive a spaceship. And so the memory changed a little bit, and it's still in this labile state. So in order to save it, in order to put it back into long-term memory, it needs to be reconsolidated. And so here we see the memory is reconsolidated. It's now in this long-term stable state, and it's not going anywhere. 
And this is pretty much the life of a memory now. Uh, as you, as the, the astronauts go forward, these memories will be brought back up into a labile state, used, put back down into long-term memory. And you can kind of see how a memory would go back and forth and back and forth throughout life, which is, I think, in itself a really interesting idea that, to some extent, every memory that we have, every memory that we are reliving is actually just us remembering the last time that we had that memory, right? Because it's changing as it goes, which maybe gives us a bit of an idea of, of why eyewitness testimony can be you know, a little suspect or, or why you think back to some important event in your life and it's much different than how everyone else remembers it. <laughs> but this is the life of a memory until we're ready to lose it. And when we're ready to lose it, we're actually using some of the same ideas. So we're going to take this long-term memory and we're gonna bring it up into a labile state. But now, while this memory is malleable, we can prevent the reconsolidation. And if we do that, if we don't allow the memory to go back into long-term storage, we can either potentially reduce the memory or eliminate it altogether. And so, so now we have a full roadmap of how memories are working in their, in their entire lifespan, and we can kind of get an idea of maybe where memories could be uh, manipulated in the case of our, our astronauts here. So we've talked about alcohol, right? Alcohol is maybe not affecting the reconsolidation of the memory as much as it is affecting the consolidation of the memory. And so in that case, in this case, it's probably not what's causing you know, our astronauts to have forgotten how to fly a ship. But if we could figure out something that is blocking reconsolidation, it might be a better explanation. And to do that, we'll, we'll look to some of the research that we conduct, in, or that I conduct in, in Dr. Barbara Sorg's lab at Washington State, Vancouver, uh, and, and what we're trying to answer for, for how memories are stored. And we are interested in a very specific type of memory. We are interested in, in memories about cocaine. We're interested in, in how a person, or in this case, a rat, remembers uh, that they like cocaine or, or this type of cocaine addiction. And so what I'm showing you here is a rat that has been trained to self-administer cocaine and he's cruising around in this self-administration box and eventually he'll go over and find his lever, he'll press it, there he pressed it, and he received a tiny infusion of cocaine down through that tether. And he can choose to do this or choose not to do it, but one thing that is almost always certain is they learn how to do it. Uh, it turns out that rats like cocaine a lot. Um, and they remember that for a very long time. I don't think I've ever seen a rat forget how to press the lever for cocaine. And so what we want to understand is why this happens. What is, it, what is storing this memory? What is helping form this memory? And then what is retaining that memory? And in order to understand that, we look to a, uh, a very particular part of the brain. We look to those synapses that we talked about, those 500 trillion synapses that are in the brain. And the reason that we look there is because while we're not gaining a whole lot of neurons throughout life, right? There's maybe a handful of new neurons that are generated. We're mostly losing them. Uh, we are creating a whole lot of new synapses. In fact, synapses change all the time. They're changing right now as you listen to me. Uh, I hope that there are more synapses being developed. You're not losing them by listening to me. But the synapses are changing all the time. And so we think that that's really important. So let's look to the physiology of a neuron. And what I'm showing you here is, is a pretty typical cell. We have our cell body, 
But from this cell body in a neuron, we have this projection coming out called an axon. That axon goes down, it's kind of our cable that connects it to its neighbor, where it's forming a synapse from these axon terminals that are connecting with the dendrites of the neighboring cells. So this, you know, this is occurring all throughout the brain. It changes quite a bit, and we have some really good evidence that it changes. One of my favorite studies showing this is a study showing uh, dendritic branching of a neuron in kind of what we're just gonna call a normal state, a basal state. Maybe this is a rat that hasn't experienced cocaine. But after it does experience cocaine, what we see is that there's a whole lot more of this dendritic arborization. There's a whole lot more of these dendrites on the neuron, and that correlates really well with the number of synapses that are formed. And so we see that with experiences like cocaine, or, or maybe just learning, uh, there's a whole lot more dendritic arborization. And specifically what we're interested in here is the amount of neuroplasticity that is present. We think that there is a character, in this case this perineuronal net, that might be regulating the plasticity of these neurons. And so we're going in and we're trying to see how we can manipulate that in these rats that like to self-administer cocaine. So before we get to that, I like to show this image because I think this is really impressive. This is a picture that we captured of a number of perineuronal nets and a slice of rat tissue from our confocal microscope at WSE Vancouver. And it's just, it's beautiful to see these neurons that, I mean, these actually exist. We can get down to this level. And on top of that, what I really love is that they match up very closely to the cartoon depiction of what perineuronal nets look like. They're even the right color. <laughs> And so, okay, so we have this idea of what perineuronal nets are. Now, what we are interested in studying is whether this lever-pressing behavior that our rats engage in is related to the presence of these perineuronal nets, if the memory that they're forming is actually being regulated by these perineuronal nets. And in order to study that, we are trying to find a way to manipulate the perineuronal nets. So we can administer an enzyme called chondroitinase ABC to our rats, and if we do that, we will see that, <laughs> that the perineuronal nets become chewed up, they become less present, and that increases the plasticity of the memory that these, these rats have formed. And in fact, what we have found is that when we administer chondroitinase ABC, we can do two things. We can both block the learning of this cocaine lever-pressing behavior, and that's what I'm showing you here compared to our control rats that weren't administered chondroitinase ABC but we can also block the reconsolidation of this memory, or we can help dissipate this memory by administering the chondroitinase ABC when the memory is in a labile state. And so that's really interesting. If we go back to our, mem our, our memory map now, then we can overlay these perineuronal nets onto what we know, and we can see that, in fact, perineuronal nets might be involved in memory consolidation, but they might also be involved in memory reconsolidation. So, this seems very promising. Let's go back to the scene of the crime, and let's look for some evidence to support our hypothesis that it was perineuronal nets all along. And you know, I guess on inspection of this image, one thing kind of pops out to me, and that's that the astronauts are wearing their spacesuits, right? They're wearing these helmets. And I mean, just by the logistics of it, I, I doubt that the aliens could have administered chondroitinase ABC into the brains of the astronauts without them noticing. And so, you know, I, I think the logistics are too difficult. We can probably just wipe that one off and, and consider it to not be the, the case. <laughs> and so I have, I have one last hypothesis for you. And I think this is probably a type of memory loss that is on the forefront of everyone's minds. Um, <laughs> and that is dementia. 
Because dementia is, is certainly a, a scary type of loss of cognitive function. And, and it's really interesting because it really isn't a single dementia, right? There are a number of different dementias that include, that include Lewy body dementias, uh, that include Alzheimer's disease, frontal temporal disorders, and also dementias caused by vascular incidents like stroke. And all of these diseases or conditions have a very similar uh, set of symptoms that accompany them, including memory loss, inability to communicate, loss of focus, loss of reasoning or judgment, and, and sometimes even visual perception. And I suppose this is probably the time to just put the you know, disclaimer out there that everyone has problems with memory, so don't sit there and self-diagnose yourself. <laughs> just because you can't remember something on a Wednesday doesn't mean that you have dementia. <laughs> But, but uh, dementia is very interesting, and I think one of the more interesting types of dementia is actually Alzheimer's disease. And so I'm gonna play you a short clip because I think this clip uh, does a really good job of explaining to the characters that we often talk about with Alzheimer's disease. We talk about uh, beta amyloid plaques and tau. In a person with Alzheimer's disease, the most basic form of dementia, toxic changes in the brain destroy it's the great. healthy balance. All right, so, so this is a, you know, a really great clip, and I'm sorry that I can't play you more of it. If you want to find this, it's really easy to find by going to the National Institute of Aging and on the uh, NIH.gov website and just searching Alzheimer's. They have some great resources there for all sorts of dementias. Uh, but, but in terms of you know, treatment of dementias, I think this is what we would all like to hear about, is what do we do to prevent dementia? And unfortunately, there isn't a lot that we can do to prevent it, but we can certainly prolong the onset. And at this point, one of the best ways to do that is through healthy living, improving your diet, improving exercise, and improving your cardiovascular health. And interestingly, one of the reasons I think that that's the case is because all of these things tend to improve neurogenesis throughout life. Happier people, people that aren't experiencing depression, and people that are uh, regularly exercising are shown to have greater amounts of neurogenesis throughout life. And so this is one of those things that we can do to really, you know, be healthier people, but also potentially stave off uh, dementia. The other interesting prevention point here is diabetes. And this is a paper that came out not too long ago, or a series of papers that came out not too long ago, talking about the association of a new type of diabetes, or, or what they're calling diabetes 3, and neuronal insensitivity to insulin being associated with Alzheimer's disease. And so some have gone as far as to call Alzheimer's the next type of diabetes, or diabetes 3 being called Alzheimer's disease. So that's very interesting, although it doesn't provide much hope for us, right? This is still not a treatment. But what is potentially a treatment is a paper that just came out last week. This is absolutely perfect timing to come talk about this. This is a group that, that claims that they are able to improve, uh, improve memory in older subjects by using a, a technology that's been around for years called transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
And this is, this is kind of a, an interesting technology because the entire idea here is that we're able to change a person's neuronal function without going into the brain. They're actually able to hold this wand over the back of someone's head and either increase or decrease neuronal functioning just by doing that. And so you can kind of tell that the, the practitioner comes up and they just whack the person right on the head with the wand. <laughs> no. <laughs> what they do is they, they hold this wand that's, that's actually uh, comprised of, of several you know, very technical magnetic coils. And when those coils are energized, they're able to focus a, a magnetic field deep into the brain into a very specific point. Those, uh, that, that magnetic field can then be pulsed in particular frequencies that will either inhibit or uh, excite their neuronal activity under there. One of the, the classic studies that was done, I think, a long time ago with, with transcranial magnetic stimulation was to put the stimulation over the motor cortex of a, of a participant, and they could either make the person move their arm or they could inhibit it so they couldn't raise their arm. And I just imagine this is extremely distressful, but it, it works. And so what, what the researchers did in this particular study was to use this transcranial magnetic stimulation to stimulate the prefrontal cortex and the temporal cortex of their participants and actually synchronize some of the, uh, the neuronal firing in those two regions. And while they were doing this, they had their participants conduct a memory task. And in this memory task, the participants sat there and they watched a computer screen that would have a, you know, just a cross on it to focus, and all of a sudden it would flash a picture and then go back to nothing for you know, just a fraction of a second and then flash a second picture. And the participant's task was to say whether or not the two pictures were identical, whether it was the same picture or not. And what they found is that between young participants and participants over the age of 60, there was a significant difference in how quickly, oops, <laughs> and how quickly the participants answered and the accuracy. So older participants weren't as fast and they weren't as accurate until they stimulated the brains of these participants. And you'll be happy to know that stimulation increased the accuracy and, the, uh, and decreased the latency all the way back to the point of the young participants. So these 60-year-old-plus people were performing this memory task just as good as the young people. And if anyone in the audience is over 60 years old, you might also be satisfied to know that it didn't have any effect on the young population. They were already as good as they were going to get. <laughs> so, so this is really promising. Obviously, this is a technology that we'll probably hear more about in the future. But, but unfortunately, at this point, this effect only lasted about an hour. They would stimulate the participants for about 20 minutes. And after 50 minutes, the effect went away. So it's not quite there yet. But it might be on a planet like Aries. And so I think I have another hypothesis for how our crew lost their memory, and that is some form of alien transcranial magnetic stimulation. And the way this would work is that our, our astronauts flew into Aries, and of course that made the memory labile because they had to remember how to fly there. And before they could leave, the aliens deployed their transcranial magnetic stimulation. <laughs> it blocked the memory reconsolidation, and they forgot entirely how to pilot their ship home. And now they're stuck. And so I think what we have to do is go back to the scene of the crime, and we need to investigate. We need to test our hypothesis. And so we, we have to look for clues. And you know, I, again, looking at the image here, what I've, what I've realized is we missed a big clue all along. I mean, what is this astronaut pointing at? He's pointing at something. Uh, you know, maybe we just need to zoom in there and kind of see what it is that he's looking at. And if we do, oh my God, there it is. 
We, it was in plain sight the whole time. The alien transcranial magnetic stimulator had blocked the memory of these astronauts, and they forgot how to fly home. <laughs> so thank you for listening and for helping us solve this problem. And I will be happy to answer any more questions or any questions you have about it after Act 2. Thank you, Dr. Harkness. We will surely visit you once again during the question and answer period, but first, let's return to the spaceship Havasupai Sunlight. In the first part of tonight's performance, Commander Warren and her crew aboard a survey ship visited the dwarf planet Ares after traveling 18 years through space from Earth. They were sent to this distant planet to investigate strange signals thought to be originating there. Commander Warren and her crew identified the source of these signals as the junkyard, a collection of engine parts strewn across the rocky surface of Ares, left there by an earlier spaceship. Now this, of course, was a significant scientific discovery, but as Commander Warren told us, her ship did not provide the necessary resources for a long term of stay on the planet. Any investigation would have to await another mission. Attempting to leave Ares, Warren realized the engine room crew had forgotten how to start the spaceship's engines. That problem was addressed, and Havai Supai Sunlight and Warren and the crew aboard blasted off from Ares and pointed its silver nose toward Earth and home. Countdown for a blast off. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one, fire. Commander's Log, April 2039. A careful and thorough investigation of the junkyard with infrared cameras and ground penetrating scanners revealed the existence of a memory trap on Ares. It was found in a tower about nine feet in height, constructed from the rocks on the planet's surface. The memory trap itself was the size and shape of a watermelon standing on end and covered with tiny hairs, each moving so to suggest vibrations, such as the antennae of an insect. Underneath, wires led to a terminal. It was a cyborg, a combination of living organism and machine working together to capture and communicate memories. Ma'am? We're safe here in the ship, but if we approach that memory trap and try to recover our memories from the terminal, we'll end up just like MacGyver, forgetting everything. You were pretty close to it when your away team first explored the junkyard. Did you forget anything? Uh, well, ma'am, uh, to tell the truth, I was too pleasantly lit up on grain spirits to know the difference. That's it. Captain Brady, when was the last time you really hung one on? I mean, just got pie-eyed drunk. Well, let's see. Uh, there was that time on Mars. And uh, was told... that the worst? Oh, it was beautiful, ma'am. It took me three days to sober up. They say I fought off the whole galactic patrol for hours. Well, I know you keep supplies in your locker. Do you think you have enough to get that drunk again? I've got a pretty good supply, ma'am. Well, that's good, because I'm going to ask you to volunteer to hang on the biggest, the most monstrous drunk in the entire history of the universe. I volunteer. No, not so fast. 
Not until I explain why I'm doing this. Ma'am, this sort of project needs no reasons. It's a pleasure. Let me finish. We know that the minute you get near that memory trap, it grabs your mind. Wipes it clean, right? Yes, ma'am. And a lead space helmet doesn't shield you, as we saw with MacGyver. Right. Now, as a communications specialist, what would you do if you wanted to shield your communications? Well, well, that's easy. I'd scramble them. Exactly. Now, how might we scramble our memories? (laughs) Jump in, Jupiter, Commander. Do you think it'll work? It has to, or we're stranded here. Are you still game? Yes, ma'am. When do I start? Right now. Let the record show that Captain Brady heroically volunteered for this highly unusual and very dangerous mission. Let the record also show that Captain Brady completed this mission with courage and valor, becoming an officer. At great risk to his own safety, Captain Brady consumed copious amounts of grain spirits, substantially altering his motor muscular and neuropsychological uh, abilities. In this state of impairment, he scaled the rock tower housing the memory trap and attached electrical leads to its terminal. Scientists on board were able to download the captured memories. They're studying them now, hoping to find a way to reintroduce them to the mines from which they were taken. Captain Brady suffered major discomfort during his five-day recovery from the mission. Uh... (laughs) Well, Brady, how do you feel? Like I've been cycled through the airlock and spent a week floating in space. You turned the trick, Captain. Congratulations. Uh, Trick? You hooked into the memory trap. Memories are flowing out now. We've got a recording hooked up. The stuff we're listening to is enough to set your teeth on edge. What stuff? Memories collected over hundreds of years, disassociated from any sense of the minds from which they were stolen. It will take maybe as many years to sort it out, but we're getting some of it straight already. Oh, any of, uh, any of our own stuff? Plenty. <laughs> Pretty heady little gadget, that memory trap. O- only one thing, though. And what's that? Just let me know if you come across a good hangover remedy. Oh. <laughs> Once we settled into the return trip to Earth, most of the crew went into suspended animation. The ship was on automatic control. 18 years later, breaking for Earth orbit, the ship's computers woke us. We were looking forward to landing on Earth after nearly 40 years in space. But Earth's surface and climate system had dramatically changed in our absence. Even the most trusted scientific predictions for the impacts of global warming at the time of our departure to Aries did not prepare us for what we witnessed from space while orbiting our home planet. Commander, the volumes of both polar ice caps, north and south, as well as the ice covering Greenland and glaciers around the world are massively reduced. They have melted while we are away. Many coastal cities are permanently underwater. In other city streets have turned into canals. Seawater has significantly flooded many low-lying areas around the world. And we have more observations, ma'am. Hurricanes and typhoons and intense heavy rains, which were once seasonal, ma'am, are now continuous around the world. Captain Brady mentioned the flooding, but there are also fires. 
what isn't underwater is burning as large fires are unchecked and out of control, fueled by hot winds and dry conditions. Our scanning instruments told us Earth was in the grip of a sustained heat wave. Each day, one after the next, was a long, hot summer day. There was no cooling at night, no relief from the heat, always hot. Strangely, though, even with all the hot weather, heavy, intense rains produced runoff, landslides, and massive erosion. Landscapes everywhere were changing, or no longer recognizable. There is no sign of commerce, Commander. Nothing to indicate people going about their lives. If people are down there, they are hiding from the water and the weather. These are extraordinary events. <laughs> All our radio broadcasts of Mission Control are unanswered. There are no apparent radio or television broadcasts available where we might learn what happened. But I have found Frequency 406, an international search and rescue information detection and distribution system. And the system is still operating? Yes, uh, beacons are still transmitting their distress signals and the satellites are still picking them up. I, I can hear them on their downlinks, but, but there's something else, Commander. And what is that? Voices. Voices? What do you mean, voices? Human voices, ma'am. Reporting record-setting extreme climate occurring around the planet. Changes that were predicted before we left, but, but nothing on this scale or to this degree. I recall frequency 406. It was developed to help locate avalanche victims, stranded ships, disabled hikers. It broadcasted an emergency signal like a beep. How is it that voices are now part of the broadcast? Well, I'm not sure, ma'am, but, but it seems that people down there have figured out how to hack the radio beacons to broadcast their voices. They are uploading reports of events in their areas and listening to reports from others. It's an ingenious solution for staying in touch when all the other communication systems are down. And what have you heard so far? I'll play you some samples, ma'am. Uh, this is Fire Control Redding, California. A fire NATO, a churning funnel of smoke and flame the size of three football fields, has formed as part of a wildfire here. The fire is potentially uncontrollable and could destroy large swaths of forests and urban areas. Lord help you if you have one of these. Day after day, the hot temperatures continue. No break, no relief, even with heavy rains, forests and vegetation have dried out. Fire burns year-round. From the Midwest, we've received unprecedented reports of back-to-back -back bomb cyclones piling up late-season snow, followed by warm weather that brought epic flooding to vast regions. The livestock are dead, crops abandoned, fields underwater. There is nothing left. Oh, God. The virus swept through the region, destroying most crops. Thousands died of starvation. We have no food and no way to get any. No way to get anywhere else to look for food. Those of us who remain will surely die. 
Droughts extend throughout the years, so much hotter than we expected. More heat waves, the rains are heavy and hot. Mountainsides are washed away. Roads and transportation blocked or destroyed. Global economic collapse replaced by feudal societies, some run by the remains of large corporations. These climate changes and their effects were unprecedented. We had never seen anything like them. Dramatic, bizarre ecosystem changes. Tropical fish in Arctic waters. Bird migration patterns changed. Species of plant and animal life disappeared. Bees and spiders, once thought about to disappear, were everywhere. Polar bears had left the ice. Science fiction had become science fact. <laughs> The science fiction portrayal suggests that our future may be imperiled by extreme changes in the Earth's climate. Is this indeed our future? Can it be prevented? School of the Environment at Washington State University, Vancouver. All right. Well, welcome. So one of the first questions we need to ask is, are we in the apocalypse? And we heard a science fiction portrayal of the apocalypse. And indeed, many of the depictions and the narrative that we saw were from events that occurred in the last year on Earth. So the good news is our governments and our institutions have not collapsed. Arguably, they may be stressed. But many of the things we heard about are indeed happening here on Earth. And before we delve into that, I'd like to think a little bit about exploration and learning and excitement, um, in particular on other planets. And here is one of the largest watersheds mapped for the first time on Mars in our search for life on Mars. And this is work that I did with a group earlier when I was uh, working at NASA. And now we have life detection missions as we speak working on uh, using data like this to find locations where we might find life on other planets. And exploring other planets is very exciting and important to do. <clears throat> and the idea of space exploration captures the imagination of future generations and, and scientists and the public. It's really a, a nice theme to think about and, and focus on, but for today, I want to focus on the greatest show on Earth, which is our planet. <clears throat> this is just a look at some stories that have occurred in the last year and some record events, and just thinking about how we explore Earth and all the amazing things that are happening. And maybe rather than embracing this change in a fearful way, we can think and adapt to being excited about it, learning, and hopefully preventing it. Um, this is a look at snowfall in the Pacific Northwest in the middle of March, which was unusually high amounts of snowfall late in the season, and uh, followed by very rapid melting within about a 48-hour period. All this snow was gone. This is the dead of winter in the middle of March here. And at the time this happened, we had unprecedented cold records moving through the Midwest, record cold weather uh, occurring in Minneapolis. I texted my nephew and asked him to make recordings of this record event 
um, and think about strange things that are happening to our planet. You know, we talk about climate change and things getting warmer, but things also happen in all kinds of different directions. And there's some very interesting feedbacks and connections that we really know virtually nothing about um, and we're beginning to understand. Record flooding in Australia and, of course, as we recently saw in the Midwest, um, with, with notably graphic and visual impacts to livestock. And this is a look at cows finding high ground, escaping and sort of being isolated on these high features on the landscape, um, is happening all around the globe as we speak. Um, things like record hurricanes that have penetrated inland farther than we've ever seen before and essentially wiping out an entire state's uh, agricultural crop and pecans, cotton, um, being instantly decimated in ways that our models can't predict. Our models simply don't have the envelope to, to uh, capture the behavior of some of the hurricanes that are now occurring on Earth. <clears throat> this is a look at some of the story uh, which we heard about in the uh, radio show on some of the extreme flooding happening in the Midwest, which is unprecedented, and some of the largest flooding families have ever seen um, in this area. As well, we've got record flooding happening in virtually every continent now. Um, this is flash flooding happening in the south of France in villages that are thousands of years old, um, where these structures have lasted for a very long time and were instantly uh, impacted by these new changes. So, you know, these, these areas have withstood quite a bit of changes in the Earth's past climate, and we're seeing uh, some of the impacts, again, from 2018 um, happening in Spain and France, um, as well as in the West. This is a look at fire in wheat fields from last summer in Oregon. Um, now, if you look in the scientific literature, there is no scientific literature for fire ecology in wheat fields or in the agricultural literature. They simply didn't happen before. Um, so again, you know, thinking about new things happening on Earth, these are all new changes. And what do they mean? How do we address them are all big new questions that we're beginning to look at. And we heard about the fire NATO. Indeed, the fire NATO that occurred outside of Reading um, was new weather that was unpredicted, undocumented prior to these large fires. So we're seeing new uh, components of the Earth's atmosphere interacting with the land surface um, that really make Earth. Earth has always been a very dynamic place. Um, and some of the interactions between changes in the climate system and our planet are happening with greater frequency and intensity in ways that we didn't fully understand before. Um, we heard about heat waves. This is a look at a heat wave that happened in Europe. Um, this is in the Mediterranean area. And, you know, heat waves can be very unpleasant if you don't have an air conditioner. They can also be a good day to go to the beach. Um, so, you know, thinking about ways to adopt to these. Hopefully, if you're near water, you can, you can get uh, some relief from these heat waves. Um, but this is the new future. This is the Earth that we live in. Um, and these types of events are only going to happen with greater frequency and intensity. Um, in my climate change class, I have my students document events that happen throughout the course of the, the class. And I've been doing this for about 10 years now. And this is just some of the results from this, this fall from the students uh, that took the class, where they documented 
record events that have never happened in the, in the recorded history of human history on Earth um, of new climates. And you can just see how many there were. I have a PhD student who's now been working on record events since December, um, and the number has increased even more. Um, these are, normally we would see one or two records, um, and you can see just how many there are that happened over a very short period of time. Um, this is our new normal. And thinking about record heat waves, we're gonna hear stories uh, with, with increasing frequency, um, increasingly happening throughout the world of new records, 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 um, of new climate envelopes. And what are the surprises that will come from that? And what can we learn? And how can we adapt to this future on Earth and this present day state? Um, so that somewhat paints a grim picture, depending on how you look at it. I mean, we are possibly in the apocalypse. We do have new weather, um, new changes to the weather that aren't very comfortable and we're not particularly adapted to. And now I want to sort of explore alternative um, solutions to think about this problem of climate change. Um, and one of them is the meatless burger that, that Burger King just developed. They do not call this a veggie burger. This tastes exactly like meat. Um, and there are a number of startups in the Bay Area now working on plant-based products that basically replace meat that, that you cannot tell the difference between the product and the meat. Um, so, you know, there are innovations, there are things coming in that could come into play and address this climate change, and I haven't had a chance to get this, but, you know, if you get a chance, I know some people have, and Whole Foods is now selling these um, types of burgers, and I expect we'll only see more of these over the next uh, coming years. I know they're working on chicken as well. Um, this is a look at hydrogen power, which is now uh, being widely adopted. So this is a carbon neutral technology, um, which is actually happening now, and shipping companies throughout the US are developing major contracts, replacing their entire fleets with zero emission technology, um, which could potentially address some of the, the forcings um, that are causing some of the problems we just talked about earlier. Um, and this is a look and even more exciting than the fleets and the new fleets at the number of stations where one can get hydrogen power. Um, these will become available over the next decade. Um, and so this is a big game changer. You know, if you have an electric car, the number of stations that you can uh, refill and get more electricity are very limited. But you, you know, one can actually envision owning a vehicle and, and uh, driving with this kind of infrastructure across the US and hopefully more throughout the world. So, you know, there are opportunities and things are changing and people are working on them. And there's going to be a lot happening over the next decade um, in, in this arena and in other arenas um, that can potentially address some of these issues. So I wanted to sort of take a minute and, and back up and just give you my story. You know, we've heard about the apocalypse. We've heard about dramatic changes to the Earth's climate system and maybe some solutions that can address it. Um, when I started my career, I was working on water on Mars and carbon on Earth, um, the carbon cycle, and ended up deciding to focus more on understanding the Earth's carbon cycle. And that's mostly what I work on, is how the carbon cycle operates at a global scale, how it interacts with our climate system. And, and because carbon is essentially, and, and the emission of our fossil fuels that are emitting carbon is what's causing a lot of these big changes on the Earth's climate system, the hope is that if we understand the carbon cycle, 
We can maybe harness some of its processes and potentially uh, alleviate or eliminate this problem of climate change. And you know, one thing I'll say, one bit of good news when you study the carbon cycle is if we do that and if we figure out a way to alter the carbon cycle, the global, global carbon cycle, um, to essentially um, take back some of the fossil fuel emissions we've had, this problem would change or the Earth's climate system would respond virtually instantaneously. Um, even though it may take decades for the heat that's accumulated in the Earth's climate system to move through, literally, if we could decrease the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere tomorrow, it would literally be, uh, we would get a direct response in the Earth's climate system. So that's some good news about the, the potential. Um, if we really understand the carbon, carbon cycle and we're really able to implement some of the opportunities that we see by studying it. Um, so a bit more about my story. I also, um, after working at NASA, saw this job opening during the Obama administration. And it was one of the coolest things I ever did. I, I um, got this job and I was given this title of senior climate change scientist by the federal government. Now, when I took this job, my hope was that you know, we would have senior climate change scientists all over the country and we, there would you know, be a lot of senior climate change activity. Um, I think I'm the only one to have the distinction of that title, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, and now, of course, you know, it, it's questionable whether or not we'll have these and how long it'll be before we, the, at least the federal government has more senior climate change scientists. Um, but that's, that's kind of how I really shifted my focus to the carbon cycle and um, to addressing some of the problems with climate change with uh, Obama's climate change action plan. Um, and so I developed a climate change action program in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and one of the things we focused on is developing a vulnerability assessment toolbox to start to understand some of these impacts. And my students are now working, uh, working more on some of that using, using more science tools um, today. But we develop a science-based peer-reviewed toolbox to help decision makers and the public understand the impacts of climate change. Um, we also completed climate change action plans for 17 forests across the western U.S. before I left, um, which I still have on my desk. It was sort of one of my uh, you know, goals in, in the course of running that program to develop those plans. Um, and they are now being implemented, I'm happy to say. Um, and one of the other things is working on uh, climate change in the Pacific Northwest is how many trees we have and how many carbon sequestration opportunities there are with all the vegetation and all the land we have. So there are some very exciting opportunities there that we developed looking at bioenergy um, and looking at the potential for forests uh, to sustain some of our energy needs in the region. Um, and then finally, education and outreach, which is you know one of the reasons I'm here tonight and one of the reasons I'm still working here at WSU, really focused on education and outreach, and it was probably one of the coolest things I've done in my career to be able to focus on that. I would basically go to the most rural parts of the western U.S., find people that I thought, you know, maybe most skeptical about climate change, and we would have an all-day kind of interaction about skepticism and climate change, and one of the ways I did that was with a barbecue, and so I'm very excited now that I have this meatless Whopper to bring into the portfolio 
and I can, I can go and bring my barbecue to the next shindig. But I, I will say that, you know, if you bring a barbecue, um, I never experienced any hostility from anyone. Um, it really does wonders. So, you know, uh, it was very educational, both for me and, and for the folks that I interacted with. Um, so now I'm a professor at Washington State, Vancouver. I study the global carbon cycle, and I teach students about climate change. And I, I call it Climate Change 101, or coffee hour or cocktail party uh, literacy on climate change. Um, and we do that every fall. We also, for those of you who are interested, are offering that online as well. Um, and two of my students, I think one of whom is here, are, are working on new tools using stable isotopes and geochemistry to understand some of the changes in the Earth's climate system in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the things they and, and I will be working on this summer is how to use stable isotopes as a tracer. So we're developing some stable isotope tracer techniques to better understand pathways and changes of the carbon cycle. Um, so just to sum up my experience since I took that job as senior climate change scientist, when I started and started giving those talks at my barbecue, we were at 388.92 parts per million. Um, from this class that I taught in the fall with my students, we now were at 406 parts per million. Um, a dramatic amount of change just in the, in the course that I've been doing this actively in terms of education is over a seven-year period. Um, so it's not just big changes, of course, in the climate system we're seeing, but big changes in the, the uh, concentration of carbon in the Earth's atmosphere and the carbon cycle itself, really big changes. And you know, one of the goals I have, uh, hopefully <laughs> within my lifetime, but maybe with the students that, that um, we're educating and training, is you know, let's see if we can get this number to stay steady one year or decrease. Um, and you know, I really do think that's possible if we put our heads together. It's a question of when and how that's going to happen. Um, so that's sort of the main focus of what I do is you know, let's see if we can get this number to not increase. Um, what are the opportunities to do that? And, and then more importantly, possibly decrease. Um, okay, so a few other things um, that I've done in the course of my tenure that I wanted to talk about is Science Day on the Hill to meet with congressionals. Um, so, you know, we do the basic science, we do the education and outreach, and interact with the decision makers in this country. And, um, Participating out in DC with Climate Science Day on the Hill, um, you know, during the current administration is definitely a challenge. Um, but you know, it's not that different from bringing a barbecue out to the western side of our uh, state, um, for that matter. Um, and you know, when we sit down and we meet, we always focus on impacts. That's the first talking point. Let's talk about impacts in communities and you know how it's impacting your. Uh, constituents. Um, and the other thing I always do is include a discussion of carbon and CO2. CO2 is a big elephant in the room, um, and we need to have that discussion. Um, one of the reasons we need to have that discussion is, you know, I guess I believe as a scientist and an educator is that if you have a, a tell a patient, or that you have an obligation, I should say, to, to tell a patient that they have cancer, um, no matter what their denial or acceptance is. And, you know, I have a, some doctors that live down the street from me. We sort of swap stories, um, you know, somebody going into the ER and having patients die on them um, and, and, you know, finding energy and enthusiasm in the work you do as a practitioner. Um, it's not that different from 
sort of giving somebody a prognosis, it may be a less than positive one um, on some of this, um, but it's, it's our duty and our obligation. So that's a conversation we continue to have and I <laughs> would continue to have. Um, so now on to sort of maybe a solution, more of a solution-based framework and some of the work that I've done um, is working on developing farming techniques that might eventually scale globally to help reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, and how can we use our understanding of geochemistry and biochemistry and integrate that with farming practices and what are the opportunities that that creates? And we've done past projects in the southeast and demonstrated that with the right farming technique, very rapid increases in soil carbon can uh, occur that are economically profitable, that are healthy for the environment, um, and that also end up retaining large amounts of carbon. Um, and just a few notes about land use, you know, over the next 100 years, one of the great opportunities and frontiers is repurposing land. We are already on most parts of the planet that will be, and what, what can we do to reinvent agriculture? What can we do to rethink how we're farming so that we can produce food and potentially um, work with the carbon cycle and sequester carbon? Um, so I see that as a frontier and a hub for innovation and, and really just rethinking and reinventing how we purpose these lands is a lot of what um, we're working on now and thinking about, and, and I don't think that conversation is, you know, it's really just the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. Um, so some aspects of what uh, some of these ideas is thinking about how organic matter binds chemically to minerals. So when, when there are chemical bonds, and these are ligand bonds between organic matter and mineral surfaces that we have in soil, um, some of those bonds can last 20,000 years. So if we can figure out how to accelerate the rate at which chemical bonds between organic matter and minerals form, um, and we can get a lot of those bonds forming in the soil, um, we could have a carbon reserve in the soil that is safe, that isn't going to be vulnerable to floods, that isn't going to be vulnerable to fire um, or plowing. Um, and so having an approach that is, that is based on our understanding of chemistry and integrates our understanding of chemistry with farming opportunities is kind of where a lot of the work uh, and opportunities lie in this frontier. Um, and just to sort of contrast what we're talking about in terms of using chemistry and our understanding of chemistry, um, you know, adding organic matter to the, to the topsoil is not what we're talking about. Um, so there's a lot of farmers that do that. There isn't a single farmer who won't tell you that organic matter is good for farming. Um, but unfortunately, if you add it to the topsoil, it's vulnerable to things like microbial breakdown. It's vulnerable to drought. Some of the drought uh, stories that we heard about in these heat waves, it's vulnerable to fire. Um, and so it's not really going to solve the problem when it comes to dealing with this climate change issue if we're simply adding organic matter near the surface. Um, <clears throat> so I really believe, and I just want to kind of leave this, leave this with you, is that emerging land use opportunities are a tremendous opportunity. I mean, it's a great way to grow food. It's a great way to create a healthy environment and potentially a great way to increase the amount of carbon we have in the soil and potentially lower that amount of CO2 we saw in the atmosphere or stabilize it. I think, you know, I hate to say I'll settle for it stabilizing, but 
you've got to start somewhere. Um, so I think both of those opportunities lie in, in this emerging land use. Um, and I also kind of just wanted to share a perspective on farming. And, you know, we're talking about farmlands in the U.S. And a lot of these farmlands, you know, you look at a map of where our farmlands and the opportunities lie and a congressional map, and you hear narratives in the, in the, you know, in the media and in the news um, about skepticism on climate change and denialism on climate change. Um, and, you know, I think to some degree, you know, these are stories we read and hear about. Um, and are they really true or not? Um, and I just want to sort of relay my perspective and my experience having, you know, worked on education in these rural areas and now working on these research questions with farmers. Um, you know, there isn't a single farmer I've met who isn't concerned when they find out about fires happening in wheat fields. When you have your, your entire crop um, that burns down before you're able to harvest it or your neighbors, um, there isn't a single farmer I know of who wouldn't be responsive to that issue and isn't. Um, when you hear about record rain damage to crops, there isn't a single farmer who isn't very concerned about that um, and about you know, what's happening in other states nearby and is it going to happen in my state. Um, and so there's a lot of commonality and engagement on these issues. Um, there isn't a single farmer who isn't really interested in the weather. It's one of the most, you know, farmers are out on the land all the time. They think about what's happening with the weather, when to do what, make different decisions on their, uh, on their fields. Um, and so they're very engaged, perhaps more so than, than others um, in a lot of ways, on what's happening with the, this, the, the weather that we have on Earth. Um, and then finally, and this is one of the coolest things I am fortunate about, being a soil scientist who works with organic matter, um, farmers love organic matter. I've never, I've yet to run into a single farmer who isn't really interested in organic matter. Organic matter has been around since farming began, over 10,000 years ago. It's integral to every aspect of farming. Um, and so, you know, part of this is I wonder if we're having the right conversations when we set up these dichotomies. Um, when you have most of the land, in, certainly in the U.S., um, that's occurring in these sort of maybe more rural areas and, and the potential to solve this problem at a global scale on basically on, on these, in these farmlands. Um, <clears throat> and that's just sort of a, a perspective I wanted to share with you. So a few final thoughts in parting. Uh, one of them is mitigation itself. And this is something you know, I explore with my students in our classes, you know, I think we need to recognize that mitigation alone isn't working. Um, you know, we saw those numbers of how much CO2 has gone up in the last seven years. Um, there's been numerous attempts at carbon taxes, carbon markets, reduced emissions, cap and trade. And I, I recently had to uh, give, or had the opportunity to give a talk with the same session that Obama's chief science advisor was in. And, you know, I think, not every scientist has the same perspective. John Holdren's was different than mine, but I think it's a point well taken. If, if it hasn't gotten us anywhere in the last 30 years, maybe we need to be thinking about more than just cap and trade or reduced emissions. Um, and so I think it really may be time to rethink what needs to be done about the problem. And that's my perspective um, based on working on it. And maybe we're having the wrong conversation 
And that's true when we think about these farmers. Are we having the right conversation with them? Or, or can we have a different conversation um, about the problem? Um, and finally, you know, sort of combining all this is, you know, it may be that sustainable uh, carbon sequestration with these farming practices and, and maybe even uh, geoengineering combined with alternative sustainable energy technologies uh, may be the only viable solution to climate change going forward. So it may be both, ultimately, rather than one or the other. And with that, I will thank you for taking part in what I still think of as the greatest show on Earth, which is Planet Earth. Thank you, Dr. Kramer. Ladies and gentlemen, we've presented you with two scenarios tonight, one about memory loss, the other about extreme changes in Earth's climate. For each, you've heard science fiction and science fact. You may have questions for our guests tonight, Dr. Mark Harkness, or John Harkness of the Neuroscience Program at Washington State University, Vancouver, and Dr. Mark Kramer of the School of the Environment, also at Washington State University, Vancouver. I'll ask both to join me at the microphones where they can address your questions and concerns. As a seed to hopefully get things going, I'll address a question to Dr. Harkness. Dr. Harkness, it's been revealed lately that smart speaker devices in our homes record our requests for information, even sometimes our conversations. Do these devices represent a kind of memory trap? And might they be used by individuals to preserve and protect memories? Well, I can tell you one thing. I'm sure Amazon's not forgetting what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think it's, it's one that's going to become uh, more and more apparent as our lives become increasingly digital, uh, that we put a lot of information out there, and it doesn't ever really go away. You know, I'm trying to scrub my life from Facebook to some extent, but Facebook is a memory trap. It will always remember what I have out there. And yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think some of the, the legislation that's come about, you know, in, within the last... 12 or 18 months is, is probably one of the right steps in, in terms of reducing these memory traps, in terms of uh, what Europe has done and what California is doing to give consumers the ability to you know, scrub some of this data from the web. Excellent. Thank you. Are there any questions for Dr. Harkness from the audience? You can shout them out. I can't see you, but I'll hear you. <laughs> yes. Yes, ma'am. Up front. Yeah, that's right. Well, so, so the, her question, uh, I think, is, is are we able to specify which memories we might forget if we were to block reconsolidation? Uh, and, and you're right. I, I kind of glossed over that to, to a certain extent. And that's one of the real problems that we run into with this idea that we might be able to reduce you know, cocaine addiction or addiction you know, by, uh, by blocking memory reconsolidation. It's, it's messy. We can be specific to the extent that a memory can be specific. Uh, and, you know, I think some good examples of this are in, like, therapy for PTSD, you know, bringing up uh, really traumatic memories uh, can be sometimes, you know, very salient. And, and if you were to focus treatments on, on a memory that is brought back up that is very salient, you know, it, 
a treatment could be somewhat specific. But I don't think we're going to be injecting chondroitin-ACBC ABC into patients anytime soon because you're right, it is, it's very messy and we don't want to erase memories outside of that. <laughs> Other questions from anyone for Dr. Harkness? Yes, sir. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I read Yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, you know, what, what is really the common denominator for some of these dementias or for, for Alzheimer's? And I think you're exactly right that, that the way that we think about these diseases has evolved quite a bit over, you know, the last 50 years. And I'm sure they will continue to because we certainly don't have a very good answer for any of them. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has, has changed a lot in terms of how we view Alzheimer's is, you know, whether, whether it's this plaque-tangle interaction or, you know, is one or the other more important or is it just really coming down to genetics? And, and you know, I, I'm certainly not uh, a dementia researcher. So I, there was probably someone who could answer this more completely, but I, I think you're absolutely right that, that our understanding will evolve as we have a better feel for, you know, exactly how these diseases differ. You know, I mentioned uh, diabetes 3 a little bit. And I think that that is an interesting avenue to go down, you know, exploring how our brain is interacting with nutrition, with, you know, glucose or in insulin intolerance, and, you know, what sort of impact that has on, on our brain's ability to function. Ultimately, you know, a dementia is, is the loss of neural functioning, and that can, that can, come, or that can come from so many different things. <laughs> I'm going to shift the spotlight here uh, to Dr. Kramer and um, ask him a question, and then certainly I'll encourage you to ask as well. Uh, Dr. Kramer, from your talk, one might suppose that uh, science fiction is already becoming science fact. Your photographs, your reports, uh, your information all would seem to suggest that. Is the world that we live in now and the one that we can anticipate to live in for the future to be indeed so dramatically changed? Well, um, I mean, uh, I, would, I would have to say yes. Um, that being said, you know, it's reversible, so it may not necessarily be that way. And the, the extent to which and the rate at which this world changes in a more dramatic fashion is up to us. Um, so, you know, we can't control everything, and, you know, as my meteorology professor said at Berkeley, meteorology is only a science up to 24 hours, and we're talking about predicting centuries. Um, but, you know, one of my students, Luke Rays, is, is doing work on weather and, and extreme seasonal weather that happened in 2015 as a way to understand what may happen in 2030 and 2045. So, I think the answer to that is yes, absolutely, in the sense that you know these extreme events that are happening now on Earth may give us a crystal ball, into, and what we're trying to do is get a leg up on what to expect by 2035, because models alone, unfortunately, can't really predict what our future is going to be like. Um, so you know, hopefully, we'll sort of collectively 
reverse our future once we, with a crystal ball, if we know what it's going to be, or at the very least, we may know what's in store by using the changes that we're seeing now on Earth as a, as a way to better understand some of the future changes we might have. Thank you. Questions from the audience? Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Way in the back. I see you. Shout out so we can hear you. Um, are they, yes, I mean, farmers are always interested in, in using new technology. In fact, you know, they're constantly adopting new farming practices. And if they can make an economic profit um, with new practices, there are opportunities. Now, that being said, there are progressive farmers and there are non-progressive farmers across the, the landscape. Um, but I do believe, especially if the federal government were to incentivize farmers, um, you know, there are incentives now out there for them to implement certain practices, and all farmers know what those are, and when they're ready to do it, when it works well for their farming practices, they, in fact, use those quite a bit. So if, if we had new incentives, they're already plugged into a lot of the incentive structure, um, and we just need the right incentives for, for those farmers. But I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity there, yeah. Other questions? Oh, yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah. Well, wouldn't it be great if we had a disruptive technology like an app that would allow us to live a carbon-neutral life? Um, and how close could we be to that? Um, I think the answer is closer than we think. Um, and, you know, who wouldn't sign up for that app if they didn't want to be responsive? And if you could automatically live a zero-emission life, just imagine what would happen if, you know, we propagated that disruptive technology. Um, and is that possible? I think the answer is absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Please, go ahead. From October, yes. So uh, I know at certain periods in the geological past, there's been higher levels. What do you think the highest level has ever been while there's been life on Earth? Well, uh, it depends what you mean by life on Earth. If you're talking about all life and we're, we're going back, you know, into the deep into the geologic record. Um, you know, then you're, we're talking about Earth's past that has had thicker and thinner atmospheres um, and has certainly experienced warm periods due to a thicker atmosphere. Mars, in fact, had a much thicker atmosphere in the history of, of, of the planet. And in fact, you know, we actually use the thickness of different atmospheres now to better understand and, and, and know that those cycle and vary. So, you know, when you're getting outside of the 100,000-year time frame, um, you're talking about, a, you know, a, at a time when Mars may have actually been more, more habitable when you start going back in the geologic record. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but you're, you know, I guess, I guess you know, Earth was out, out of this world, um, to answer your question, back in, you know, when you go that far back in the geologic record. And, and there are other planets like Mars that may have been much more habitable. Yes, please, go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I have a, a specific, you know, off-the-cuff uh, thing, but I guess what I was pointing out is, you know, every I, in my eight years going to with the barbecue and sort of finding the most skeptical groups that I could find, I haven't found them um, in in terms of them really rejecting the science and the idea of being a skeptic. I'm still looking for them. Um, but you know, I wonder when we build it. You know, I wonder what people are told. If, now, if you tell a farmer that they need to take all their tractors away and they can't drive them, you know, they're they're not going to be very receptive to, you know, a, a solution that's predicated around something like that. Um, and I just, you know, I guess the the point I was making is there are ways to engage people on these issues that are proactive and will engage them. Um, and we're, are we having enough of those kinds of conversations? And so, you know, the conversations that are going to they're going to engage them are, you know, things that are happening on their land that are going to help protect their crops, um, decisions they may, may make on their land that would help them and their families and their neighbors. And if it ends up being that if it were were to help address a planetary scale problem, you know, I don't think they would have any problem with that per se. In fact, a lot of them may be really supportive and engaged on that topic. So I don't know if that directly answers your, your question, but, um, and then, you know, I also wonder in the media how we create these tensions and, and how real those necessarily are or not um, in, in, you know, in, in terms of the, the real world, in terms of the real people that are working in these areas, on these landscapes. Dr. Harkness looks a little lonely there on the end of the stage. He hasn't had a question in a while. Are there any other questions? Yes, ma'am. You know, I, I don't have a great answer for you right off the bat with that, but I'd be happy to talk to you more if you want to come up and I can give you some resources. Yes, please. <laughs> well, uh, the story is to be continued. To be it's continued. a really good question. Uh, what do you think should happen to them? Where would you see the story going? <laughs> it doesn't look good for them, does it? <laughs> well, they're there with the International Space Station, so they could have some neighbors. So if there are no further questions, I, I don't see... Oh, there's one. Go ahead, please, ma'am. Yeah, that's a really great point. So the question was, is uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation similar to hypnotism and that neither are invasive? And yeah, you're very, you're very perceptive there. I think one of, the, um, you know, one of the really promising parts of what they were doing is that they were, they were encouraging a couple different brain areas to sort of talk synchronously to each other. And uh, you know, one of the interesting areas of research right now in, in cognition is the way that uh, different neuronal structures will sort of fire together. And some of the synchronization seems to be important for their communication. So by matching up the, the temporal cortex and the prefrontal cortex, 
they actually got them to talk together a little bit better, and, and I think that was important. But you know, hypnotism, you're right, is also non-invasive, and I've heard very effective things for you know for some people who are who are using uh, hypnotism to you know treat things like addiction. Well then, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our performance of Sci-Fi Sci-Facts. Our guests tonight were Dr. John Harkness and Dr. Mark Kramer. As I've said numerous times, both are on faculty at Washington State University, Vancouver. Dr. Harkness with the Neuroscience Program and Dr. Pr uh, Kramer with the School of the Environment. Barbara Richardson voiced the part of Commander Irene Warren, Sebastian Hawkins, Sebastian Hawkins uh, was engineer Mark MacGyver, and Ian Hanley was Captain Brady. All have volunteered their time and voices for tonight's performance. Thank you also to the Office of Research at Washington State University, Vancouver, who was the main sponsor of tonight's performance. The Creative Media and Digital Culture Program at Washington State University provided me the platform for which to pursue this practice-based community outreach project. KXRW-FM, Vancouver's community radio station, streamed our program live tonight all over the internet. Our broadcast originated tonight from the historic Kiggins Theater in the heart of the Arts District in downtown Vancouver. Most importantly, thank you our audience for your time and interest. We hope that you enjoyed our performance and that you will join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio. Both Dr. Kramer and Dr. Harkins have uh, indicated they're very willing to continue discussions. So if you have questions you didn't want to ask uh, publicly, come on up and visit uh, with them privately. Otherwise, good night everyone, drive home safely. Thank you very much for being here and do what you can to save the environment. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to Wednesday Wonders right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including Monday Matinee for classic live and theatrical audio plays, Tuesday Terrors for horror audio drama, Thursday Thrillers for action, adventure, mystery, and crime drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, Saturday Story Circle for kids and families alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. <laughs>